Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say that unless anyone says that they are speaking on behalf of a particular organization or group, you should assume that each person's views expressed on Tatter are theirs and theirs alone. I just want to make that clear to avoid misunderstanding. And now that I have effectively precluded any such misunderstanding, let's get started. Here's Tatter. I recently finished the book, The Fall of Wisconsin, The Conservative Conquest of a Progressive Bastion in the Future of American Politics. The book traces the political history of the Badger State. It describes the founding of the Republican Party, before it became the party that it is today, back when it was established as an abolitionist party, when it was founded in Wisconsin. A year after the party held one of its first state conventions in Madison, the state's Supreme Court considered the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, a federal law that required escaped slaves who made it to non-slaveholding states to be returned to their owners. The court found the federal law unconstitutional, and according to the book, this made Wisconsin the first state to defy the law. The fall of Wisconsin traces the state from these roots to its more recent past, including Republican Governor Scott Walker's efforts to curtail the rights of unions, as well as ongoing progressive resistance. I recently had a chance to talk with the book's author, Dan Kaufman. We discussed a variety of topics, including the Walker administration, organized labor, and race. I share that conversation in this episode, titled, Movements. Basically, um, Wisconsin was settled... Um, in the mid-19th century, largely by Scandinavian and German immigrants. Um, these two groups, for different reasons, um, had a kind of progressive tilt. The Scandinavians were fleeing um, large-scale famines at that time. Yep. And they were also fleeing a, a, their harsh physical environment, um, was also um, kind of forged a kind of communitarian ethos that some of them brought with them. And this led to a kind of disproportionate support for the trade union movement, performing agricultural cooperatives. And you saw that, you see it reflected in a kind of rural progressivism that was very strong in Wisconsin and Minnesota, which had similar demographics, very unusual in a lot of ways. Uh, at the same time, in Milwaukee, which is the one real urban place in Wisconsin, uh, beginning in the late 1840s, following a failed revolution in Germany, you had many very progressive German immigrants. Some of them had radical political ideas uh, fleeing that re failed revolution. And they coalesced around a kind of physical fitness, social improvement movement called the Turners, uh, which also fomented and to be yeah. clear, you said physical, not fiscal, right? Physical, right. It was a gymna gymnastics, basically. Basically, they thought that workers um, uh, should have strong bodies and strong minds. So these turners, and they're throughout the Midwest, and there's one very famous, huge one in Milwaukee. There were several in the earlier time. was also gymnastics training for kids and for um, adults and so on. But it was also a beer hall, and they would have lectures and they would, um, they had a kind of radical politics. And Milwaukee forged a tradition that was later derided by purists as sewer socialism. But it was the only major American city 
to elect a socialist mayor, um, and in fact elected three of them. The last one served until 1960. So these two movements, this rural progressivism founded by the Scandinavians and the German um, progressives, uh, you know, more traditional, you know, that following this failed revolution in 1848, some of them liberal, some of them quite radical, um, in Milwaukee, they, they coalesced and kind of informed Wisconsin's unusual political tradition. This movement also was deeply influenced by the University of Wisconsin, which I don't think there's a state university in the United States that has had more importance to the history of a state and more of a social mission as part of its founding. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, one of them was a famous chancellor named John Bascom, who basically was part of what's called the social gospel movement. And that basically believed that while he wasn't uh, a socialist himself, he thought that unmitigated capitalism was bad and mm -hmm. f formed a really deeply imbalanced society. And so he led the university many years and out of his leadership there was a strong moral commitment of the faculty and students to try to improve um, the lives of the state's citizens as a whole not just students there but to view their goal as to help improve uh, the social welfare of wisconsinites one of bascom's most important students his most important student was a guy named bob lafollette yeah, who was a senator and governor, and later third party presidential candidate. This was um, this was this was fighting Bob, uh, fighting Bob. Bob, right? And he he took Bascom's ideas, and also he grew up on a farm, surrounded by Norwegian immigrants in Dane County, and and he took all of these strands and kind of forged this native indigenous American progressivism. Really, so much of what we know. Um, what social insurance we have in the United States came out of Wisconsin. I'll give you some examples. The first workers' compensation bill was passed in Wisconsin. The first unemployment insurance program was passed in Wisconsin. Um, and the, the New Deal, I mean, the Social Security Act was drafted by, Wisconsin, by a Wisconsin professor. This LaFollette forged a really strong and close connection between the state university and the state government. And a lot of these professors, he drew on them, on their expertise to draft uh, legislation. Um, for example, the first progressive state income tax and this workers' compensation bill was drafted by famous uh, University of Wisconsin economist named John Commons. So out of this, this was called kind of the Wisconsin idea that um, one definition of it is that the boundaries of the university are the boundaries of the state. Um, but it's broader than that. It really was a, a social movement that um, sometimes things that it would do would be very prosaic, like um, agricultural professors would go to rural communities to teach better farming practices. It was both idealistic and pragmatic. Um, these were just drawing on science and, and this kind of expertise to um, to make better laws, including like the progressive state income tax. It had failed in 16 states before Wisconsin's had succeeded. And, and the reason it succeeded is because 
it was progressive. It mostly affected the wealthy. And they made sure that most of the money was returned to local communities so that people could see the benefit in their services of this money. And so it succeeded and was even popular, uh, as surprising as that is, because of its improvements in the quality of life of the state citizens. So that tradition really, it became a model. Judge Louis Brandeis, Supreme Court Justice, called states um, laboratories of democracy, potential laboratories of democracy. And he really had Wisconsin in mind there. Um, it was Theodore Roosevelt, President Theodore Roosevelt, called Wisconsin, you know, a laboratory for wise experimental legislation to serve the citizens as a whole. And I think a lot of what we know of the progressive era, which endured for many years, particularly strong in Wisconsin, also open, transparent government, limiting corporate influence on government. These were things that were tested in Wisconsin. Could you summarize, in your view, the, say, the two most significant legislative changes that happened under Governor Walker that affected labor in Wisconsin? Sure. I mean, that's that's pretty clear. Act 10, which decimated collective bargaining rights for public employees, not only did it affect uh, Wisconsin's workers, but it quickly became a template for other states through this national conservative infrastructure which I detail a lot in the book, a lot of uh, this stuff is replicated in various forms in other states. So that was a huge one. Um, The other one was Wisconsin becoming a so-called right to work law, um, which was, uh, it became, you know, that had been achieved in many states before. Wisconsin was a 25th state to become a right to work law, which basically means that it outlaws union shops. This was significant, though, too, in Wisconsin's case, because it really, Wisconsin was, a, a, for many decades, um, a relative stronghold for organized labor. It was the yeah. first state to recognize collective bargaining rights for public employees. And going back to the workers' compensation bill, Milwaukee's heritage of socialist mayors, and so on, um, it was always much more sympathetic, uh, almost socially democratic in a kind of European sense uh, at times. Um, And that was, uh, it became a symbolic target for conservatives. In fact, Walker boasted in his book, Unintimidated, that um, if we can do it in Wisconsin, we can do it anywhere. Um, So it was, you know, obviously different where then, you know, the South, which has never been a stronghold of organized labor, being right to work. I mean, here they had taken, um, you know, a symbolic stronghold uh, and turned it into a kind of Southern state. Now, organized labor in Wisconsin is at 8% of the workforce. That's the same as Alabama. So they have effect, and that has a really political implications. And that's what I go into in my book as, you know, Grover Norquist, the anti-tax conservative activist has said, you know, Donald Trump has Act 10, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, but he basically said that, you know, Act 10 was the most consequential thing in Trump's victory, and that if it's enacted um, in a dozen more states, the Democratic Party will cease to be a competitive force in American politics. Uh, basically along those lines, I, I can't remember the exact wording, it's in the book, but, um, but I think it shows you the power 
of organized labor to do more. It's more than just giving money to the Democratic Party and um, getting people out to the, the vote. Although those things are important to its mission, it really is a form of civil society. It's a bedrock of civil society. And it acts as a, a way for workers to share ideas about policy. It's really the only counterweight to a very powerful conservative infrastructure. Um, and that is why you had more than 100,000 protesters at the state capitol and why Walker so clearly wanted to go after it. I mean, just to get into it briefly, in the book, it also details his comment, but famously before he announced Act 10, he told a billionaire donor named Diane Hendricks that he was going to, she asked when the state would become a right to work state. And he said, well, have you seen what we're going to do with the public employees? Because you use divide and conquer. In other words, he was going to go after them first, split the labor movement, try to make them seem like money-grubbing drain on the taxpayer, and then go after uh, become right to work. And he did exactly that. But he used the words divide and conquer. And that has been, I think, it is a perfect summation of his legacy in Wisconsin. And it's also a pretty good summation of where American politics is at, at this moment. I mean, you see, although there's different victims and perpetrators, and President Trump obviously has a different style than Governor Walker, who has, you know, much better manners and is not so overt in in racist and misogynistic appeals. Still, he split the electorate and pointed to an enemy over there that was making your own life miserable. And that tactic, um, especially with the absence of a strong counter message, uh, has been effective. And I think it was effective in 2016, just as it was effective in getting Walker, you know, uh, three electoral victories. They have used the power that they have gotten for all the wrong things. They want to keep themselves in power. They want to cater to the special interests. It is time for us as Democrats to be as tough as they are, to be as dedicated as they are, to be as committed as they are. Michelle always says, Michelle Obama, I love her, you know, she and my wife like really tight, um, which always scares me and Barack. But Michelle always says that, you know, when they go low, we go high. No, no. When they go low, we kick them. what this new Democratic Party is about. We're proud as hell to be Democrats. We're willing to fight for the ideals of the Democratic Party. We're proud of our history. We're proud of our present. And we're proud of the future that we can create for this country. And we're not in this just to make a statement. We're in this to win. Yes. All right? So I wonder if you see any lessons from Wisconsin's recent history for progressive activists and or the Democratic Party if they're going to effectively, if the Democratic Party is, uh, despite Norquist's prediction, going to, res- going to remain viable, uh, if progressivism is going to be a viable force, are there lessons to be learned? So, for example, should Democrats fight fire with fire? So we've seen recently that in Wisconsin, the legislature in the wake of 
uh, Tony Evers' victory as the Democratic nominee for governor, the Republican legislature has uh, just passed laws that would um, reduce the powers of governors, just this naked power grab. Yeah, right, right, yes. Um, I, and, wrote, I wrote about this in a, in a piece in the Times, too, yes. Absolutely, yeah. And and so and against that, I see that in New Jersey, uh, right. Democrats are, have advanced uh, a gerrymandering um, uh, proposal. So, hey, folks, uh, this is Michael with a quick editorial note. Two days after this interview, and just one day before the scheduled release date of this episode, the New York Times reported that the Democratic leadership in New Jersey actually pulled the gerrymandering proposal. I wanted to make sure that the record in this episode was accurate, uh, although I did also want to keep this part of the conversation in because I think it's interesting and I hope you agree. But I did want to make sure that I was including accurate information about what the Democrats are or are not doing in New Jersey. Gerrymandering is a different issue, although there's been, there's been gerrymandering in Wisconsin as well by Republicans. Bottom line, what I'm driving at is Sure, Democrats fight fire with fire. Republicans are going to gerrymander to ensure that they maintain majorities in state houses, even when they lose the popular vote, if they're going to gut the powers of a newly elected Democratic governor, should Democrats do the same thing? Right. No, see, um, just to just to give my position on that, I don't think of this book, I, it's very political, yeah. but I don't think of it as necessarily a partisan political book. And I'll, I, there's a lot of criticism. It did not seem that way, to be clear. I'm, I'm just pushing yeah, it a little Yeah, thank bit. you. Because um, there's a lot of criticisms of the Democratic Party as well, too. Yeah. Personally, I feel much more comfortable on journalistic terrain, but my... my um, no, I, I don't think, I think gerrymandering has been um, a, a largely destructive uh, force in American political life. I do think that what resonated with people, um, and this was uh, in my reporting, was people saw in the Sanders campaign, for example, in 2016, um, even in rural conservative districts, he had a really strong appeal. This was told to me by a Republican state senator from Western Wisconsin who told me he had never seen anything like the Sanders campaign, that people in his district were on fire. Yeah. And then when Sanders got out of the race, all the energy, that anti-establishment energy went behind Trump. And I think there's a few reasons for it, which I get into in the book. The decimation of rural communities, the economic devastation of them, is not being addressed by either party. Yeah. Um, and you see this, you go to these small towns, and literally Main Street is entirely boarded up. Yeah. There's ravaging uh, opioid addiction, uh, a widespread opioid um, uh, epidemic, and there's very few jobs. In the late 1940s, Wisconsin had more than 150,000 uh, dairy farms, mostly family farms. Now you have the corporatization of agriculture, which has left the state with fewer than 9,000 farms, and yet they're producing more milk than they had before. So there's a lot of struggling, even though unemployment figures, the percentage is low. There's a lot of out-migration in these counties there's a lot of people working two jobs, and there's a lot of people working jobs that don't have benefits or can really offer a family-supporting uh, way of life. So there's a lot of anger there. 
I think that what resonated with people was a sort of kind of a universalist um, New Deal approach that Sanders was essentially reviving that had been not really present in the Democratic Party for some time. You had also in Milwaukee, where you had the southeastern part of the state is heavily industrialized. It was like the second largest manufacturing zone or was uh, in the country. Um, Milwaukee was known as the tool maker of the world. Um, There was a lot of of industry in Racine, Kenosha, um, that is gone. And free trade has been devastating in these communities. Those factories, and they will drive you to them. They didn't close because of automation. They closed because they went to Mexico or China. That issue has a huge salience in the industrial Midwest, much more than is recognized by East Coast media. And when you have a candidate, as in Hillary Clinton, uh, who has supported these deals for decades, and then very unconvincingly said that she was opposed to them uh, during the campaign, um, you're not going to have a lot of passion behind her. Uh, on the other hand, Trump um, gave five huge rallies in Wisconsin during the general election, and e- each one of them railed against NAFTA and the TPP, as well as, you know, you know, there was also, it was a twinned message with, you know, racism and so on. But that other part of it was not heard so much by um, by people. And there's a desperation. And a lot of these people voted for President Obama as well. I mean, Kenosha County went from a plus 13 uh, Obama County to, or plus 11, I, I can't remember, but significant Obama victory to uh, being a narrow Trump victory. What happened was Democrats just stayed home. Uh, Trump got 6,000 fewer votes than Romney, but Hillary Clinton got far, far fewer. And there was many reasons for that. But I think a big one, uh, the two biggest, to my mind, are the disaffection of the rural communities, their sense that they're ignored, and they are ignored. Their economic problems are not being addressed. And um, this also, the disaffection in traditionally Democratic strongholds like southeastern Wisconsin led to um, an abandonment. And, and there were other reasons, too. The voter ID law is certainly significant. Wisconsin passed one of the strictest ones. Um, Trump cleverly campaigning um, there, hiding out there. Hillary Clinton not campaigning at all in Wisconsin, not once, not one appearance during the general election. Um, A lot of tactical as well as um, political reasons that, that she lost. And I think those things maybe help address your question. I, I think that um, there was not a strong counter message. And I, I think gerrymandering is not what I would uh, encourage. Um, but I do think that a kind of universalist programs rooted yeah. in Wisconsin's heritage uh, to improve the livelihoods of, of the people as a whole might find a lot of econ- uh, political support. I really do think that. So, so, so it, it's, it, I think it's worth noting that um, even Eric Holder, who famously said of Republicans, and in contrast to Michelle Obama, uh, Holder said, when they go low, we kick them. And in that same statement, emphasized that it's not just about making a statement, it's about winning. Even he has been critical of the gerrymandering plan uh, mm-hmm. by Democrats in New Jersey. Yeah, in New yeah. Jersey. So I think that's a, I think that's a, a poor move. I mean, I'm for 
citizen participation. Yeah. Um, you know, as I, I don't care what party it is. And that was one of the greatest legacies of Wisconsin progressivism was to open the government to the people. The state capital was designed to be yeah. open to citizens. And that was one of the most uh, heartbreaking things about Act 10 and all of the other things. You would go to these hearings and ordinary citizens would have driven six, seven hours to give two-minute testimonies. These are not professional political people. They're just your, 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 your average citizen. They were so outraged. Um, and for example, in the bill stripping Evers, the governorship of some of his powers, it was more than 1,400 people that testified against the bill. And there was one person supporting it yeah. and only one provision of it. It was not something that anybody had campaigned on nor that anybody knew about. The public was kept in the dark about these bills until the, they dropped them on the Friday afternoon and then rammed them through that Tuesday. I mean, that's deliberate. And that's the part that I think is so offensive, as just as it is offensive in New Jersey. You know, if the people aren't given a real meaningful opportunity for input, it's, it's a farce. You know, and that is small, I'm for a small D democracy. Right you know, where, where there's real, and that's what La Follette really wanted. He said, you know, democracy can only be preserved. Representative government can only be preserved through active citizenship. And I think so much of what has been lost in Wisconsin is channels for people, ordinary people to have a say in what is happening in their communities. I mean, the Republicans were famous uh, for being the party of so-called local control, and yet they've outlawed communities from having, placing, for example, any restrictions on frac sand mining. You know, even, you know, you know what I mean? The hypocrisy is, is kind of startling. Um, and I think that that is wrong. They've, they've engineered a lot of bills um, that preempt local communities from doing anything. For example, a major oil pipeline that is being expanded, carrying tar sands crude, um, was being challenged by Dane County. Uh, and the, the company simply this, this, helped. This, this, is, uh, this is line 61? Line 61, right. And the company helped draft a provision uh, after midnight in the wee hours with no public hearing or anything that preempted any local community from doing anything about this. I think that is the part that is, is really troubling. And that would go for a Democrat or a Republican, it's, 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 it's withering our democracy and people's ability to engage. That's, my, that's the same issue I have with so much money in politics. It crowds out the voices of ordinary citizens, um, whatever their political persuasion is. So tell my listeners about Jesse Barnes. And Jesse Barnes, uh, in your discussion of him in the book, he had a couple of posters on his wall. One had the right. slogan, I am a man, and the other had the slogan, from Memphis to Madison. Tell, tell them about Jesse Barnes and the meaning, the meaning of those slogans. Yes. Okay. Jesse is one of the most wonderful people uh, I met in my reporting. He is, um, now he's known as the father of Mandela Barnes, who is the um, lieutenant governor, recently elected lieutenant governor, well, lieutenant governor-elect cool. of Wisconsin. Um, but he is um, an uh, African-American factory worker uh, who worked for three decades at a, at a company called Delphi Automotive, basically inspecting catalytic converters on the line, um, developed severe 
carpal tunnel syndrome over, after about 10 years, but toughed it out. Um, and it's kind of emblematic of African-American, um, the benefits of union membership to African-Americans um, in Milwaukee and nationally. Um, he was somebody that uh, he owns a really nice, modest home in Milwaukee, raised his son. And he also talked to me about the possibility within the labor movement for transracial solidarity, which I think mm -hmm. is an overlooked thing. Um, and he was very involved in the UAW. He went to a camp in Northern Michigan that was set up for UAW workers by Walter Ruther, who was the legendary head of the UAW and a close friend of Martin Luther King, close ally of his. And at this camp, there were children of all races, children of auto workers that played together and so on. Mandela was there. And I think, and Jesse, I just saw him recently actually post the book. And he told, and I asked him, do you think that Mandela was influenced by the trade union movement? And he said, absolutely. You know, and I think Jesse's involvement really, and, and that idea that, and, and one thing that Jesse says in the book, he says, you know, if you have a good union, race doesn't matter. And he talked about how he had white friends at his factory and black friends. Some he got along with and some he didn't. Um, but there was a sense of shared um, solidarity that I think is really important if the country is going to move forward in a way on, on the horrible legacy of racism. Now, he also, those posters are incredibly interesting. Um, they struck me that from Memphis to Madison, um, I Am a Man was an iconic poster of the Memphis garbage workers strike. That was a strike of public employees in Memphis, Tennessee, basically these impoverished um, African-American garbage workers who more than 40% of the workforce qualified for welfare. They were almost treated as, I mean, they were treated subhumanly by the mayor and they had struck um, AFSME, which is the Public Employees Union, founded in Madison in 1930s, supported their strike, um, but it was faltering. And then Dr. Martin Luther King went to Memphis and helped revive that strike, drew national attention to it. Um, there was a segregationist mayor who was militantly opposed to making any concessions to the garbage workers. And of course, King was killed on April 4th at a hotel room in, in Memphis during his support for that strike. Eventually, uh, King's murder led to a settlement where the union was, was recognized. And the second poster from Memphis to Madison showed the unity of public sector employees and how that Memphis strike, which was kind of the apex of public employees. And after that strike, many, many, there were many successful unionization efforts of public employees across the country. Um, it towards, towards its kind of nadir it, where, you know, Act 10 was going to strip away these games that had been won. So Jesse was very cognizant of the linkage between the civil rights movement and the labor movement. And King as well had spoken of that many, many times. And he said, you know, the labor movement, I'm paraphrasing again, is our most essential ally um, and, uh, and spoke, was very, very close to a lot of the unions, in the garment workers union, as well as the UAW and, and, and others. And, um, you know, so, so I think that's what those signs represent. And other things that I've read, uh, including the book, uh, if I'm recalling correctly, um, uh, There's Power in a Union, 
there is that's a good book philip Drake. You know, yeah yeah but, it's a really for, good book yeah for all, for all of the transracial potential uh, and in many cases reality of, of unions there is also a history at least in private sector unions of racial exclusion and i absolutely and i yes. didn't, i didn't i don't recall seeing that addressed in your book did i miss it or has that not been as much of an issue in wisconsin you know it's it's a problem with a book. You want to include everything. I think what I was um, focused, I, there's, you know, racism, unfortunately, is a problem that I don't think will ever be completely eradicated. What I felt was missing from the debate was a sense of labors. There's been so much negative coverage uh, for decades now of the American labor movement. Um, and I did mention... Um, the cleavages of labor, not specifically around race, but I mentioned Richard Nixon's reaching out and the conservatism of the building trades and how Walker was able to cleave them. It wasn't done in a purely racial analysis because I don't think it purely is, but divide and conquer, there is a racial subtext to that as well. But I didn't want to overplay it. Wisconsin is a very white state and a lot of those public employees are white. Um, That said, they're disproportionately African-American and Latino. Um, And I do address it a bit, but it's not a central theme, not because I think the labor movement is perfect. I was trying to bring to light some of its positive achievements. And absolutely, there is negative history, particularly in the building trades, but in a lot of unions. There's always been exclusion, racism has never been eradicated. I do think, though, almost unlike almost any other organization in American life, it offers the possibility for that transracial solidarity. And I think you saw the fear of, I go into a detailed history of the segregationist roots, the white supremacist roots of right to work laws in the South. Um, And I think that was the fear. And the fact is, Without the UAW's support, the civil rights movement would have, and I do not think it would have had the success it had. I mean, right from the Montgomery bus boycott on through, uh, Walter Ruther was a crucial ally. He was the only white speaker at the March on Washington to be given a prominent role. Um, and I think it was essential. And I think it's, it's a chapter that's less well known to people now. And that's what I, my intention was. Because I think if we're going to move past this period, I think. One of, as I mentioned in the book, you know, the, the, the only antidote that I can see to untangle the kind of what I call the Gordian knot of divide and conquer politics is solidarity. And that mm-hmm. means like looking, and I think shared economic circumstances have brought people together, even sometimes racist people. I mean, racism can exist and people can still be allies. I mean, I don't even think that's, I mean, you look at people I think some people that voted for President Obama were probably racist, yep. but that they can still, their, their political and economic interests can trump that. And I don't think racism is an immutable thing in people. I do think when you have leaders that are pointing at people and stoking it, it's toxic, especially in a time of great economic insecurity. And I think without context, I don't, I'm not somebody that just wants to castigate people that are hurting and they really are i mean i've spent years in the industrial midwest and it's hollowed out and there's a lot of white people that are suffering there as well and i think you haven't without a strong counter message 
it's dangerous. I mean, there's, there's not for no reason that Adolf Hitler attacked the trade union movement first in Germany. Um, and this is what you're seeing. It's, it's, it's a force of social cohesion. You know, it's not perfect, but it does provide a counterweight um, to, to um, some of this toxic, uh, divisive stuff. I mean, when I was hanging out in, in a lot of trade unions, they do a lot of things for the community. Food drives, they were the ones that were, that were the most present at some of these immigrant rights marches. You know, uh, Randy Bryce was always out there. This is a, one of the protagonists in the book. And now he was a bit unusual, but not exclusively. When I went to, right after Trump was elected, it's not in the book, just because there wasn't space, but I went to, uh, 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 I tagged along on a march that Bryce was going to for Vosas de la Frontera, which is an immigrant rights group in Milwaukee, a march, you know, they were fearful of Trump's, uh, you know, threats to deport people. And there was a lot of white unionists there. And there have been studies that shown that the trade union movement has diminished both in Europe and the United States, the appeal of authoritarian far right um, parties. And I think that's true. Not to say that they still don't exist. Yeah. I just think it mitigates it. Um, and I think that that can be crucial, you know, in, in a society that's on the edge of tearing itself apart. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Dan Kaufman for taking the time to talk with me, especially because he was traveling in Sweden when he did. I'm grateful that Dan was willing to take a moment away from life in Stockholm to chat with me. For more information on Dan, including a link to where you can buy a copy of The Fall of Wisconsin, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode where I will post such links. If you want to offer feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter and you use Twitter, you can mention Tatter using the handle at Tatter underscore rags, or instead you can offer feedback by posting a review at iTunes. Either way, I'm grateful for your feedback as it helps me do this podcast better. I'm also grateful to those of you who are tangible supporters of Tatter. If you are not yet, but are interested in possibly becoming a supporter, I recommend going to patreon.com slash tatter. Note that if you join at the book club level, you will periodically receive book recommendations from me, including my reading an excerpt from the recommended book, as I recently did for Dan's book in advance of this episode. But note that if you are currently a student at the college where I teach, you cannot sign up. For ethical reasons, I cannot accept your support, but for everyone else, come on in, the water's just fine. In any case, thanks for listening, and be well. <laughs>